We've spent the last four weeks in the book of Matthew watching and listening to Jesus as he encounters people um, early in his ministry. We've watched him call his first disciples out of the boat with their dad. We have seen him interact with a leper who needed healing. We've seen him turn away um, an eager teacher of the law who wanted to follow him. We've also seen him marvel at the faith of a powerful centurion. And this morning, we're turning to a later chapter in Jesus' ministry. So Jude, if you want to come on up, we're going to be turning all the way to Matthew chapter 20, um, page 1534 in your pew Bibles, a little bit closer to the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. Jude will read our scripture passage for us. The scripture reading today is Matthew 20, verses 17 through 28. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down and asking in favor of him. What is it you want? he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You do not know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? They can. We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will, not need, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have prepared by the Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and the high officials exercised authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great amongst you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. As Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you to the scouts and to the readers this morning. You've all been here all morning, and we have been blessed. Almost 10 years ago now, a UCLA child psychologist named Yalda Uhls conducted a study to compare the stated values of children in the year 2014 with children that had come before them. She wanted to understand how tweens, kids between the ages of 8 and 12, were interacting with digital culture and how their motivations were shifting over the course of time. So the, her study asked the children to rank what, what they value out of a list of seven possible motivators. Community feeling, image, benevolence, fame, self-acceptance, financial success, and achievement. And I wonder 
if you would think of the value that came out on top. I did not. Would you guess image? Would you guess self-acceptance? Financial success? No, none of those things. The top value that the highest number of those students listed was fame. 40% of the tweens in the study in 2014 selected fame as the item that was most valuable to them in that list. So the researchers dug a little bit farther back, and they found that the biggest change in the interest in fame occurred between the years 1997 and 2007, when YouTube and Facebook and Twitter were on the rise. The researchers said their growth, the growth of these platforms parallels the rise in narcissism and the drop in empathy among college students in the United States. And then they said this, we don't think that this correlation is coincidental. If you were a tween in 2014 and now you are a young adult, or even if you're older than that and you came into your adult years during that earlier decade, I want you to know I'm not picking on you, I'm not picking on internet culture. The lure of being internet famous might be a new problem, but the lure of wanting to have influence and a position of power goes way back, predates all of us. It's even there in the desires expressed by Jesus' first disciples. So today, as we listen to Jesus, as he encounters these followers expressing their desire to be significant, we're watching. Our ears are listening for how he shows them to use their influence for him. Jude started out our reading with the encounter that Jesus has with his disciples, and they're on their way up to Jerusalem. He has just told his disciples for the third time in the book of Matthew that he's going to Jerusalem to die. So Jesus' clear warning about what is going to await him and them there in Jerusalem is still ringing in their ears when Mother Zebedee and her sons come to Jesus with a request. If the journey is going to be hard, as Jesus says it will be, if he's going to Jerusalem to die, maybe this is the moment to ask Jesus for the inheritance that only he can grant. Celebrity, honor, influence, recognition, places of power when Jesus' kingdom is established. Who are the sons of Zebedee and their mom? Well, we met them a couple of weeks ago for the first time when Peter preached from Matthew chapter 4. They are James and John. They are in the boat with their father Zebedee. And he calls them out of the boat away from their life of fishing. And from Mark's gospel, we know that these men are powerhouses. They have the nickname sons of thunder that Jesus gives to them. Luke's gospel tells us that when Jesus and his disciples are wanting to pass through Samaria on their way to Jerusalem, the Samaritans won't welcome them or let them come through. And it's James and John who say, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? 
But notwithstanding their lively temperaments, these men are also the people that Jesus wants the closest to him at the most significant moments in his earthly life. They are with him at the transfiguration. They are with him in the Garden of Gethsemane on the hardest night he'll endure. So within the group of the 12 disciples, these two are important. Out of the 12, Jesus relies most on Peter and James and John. We have a little bit blurrier picture of their mom. Based on the lists of the women who are watching at a distance at Jesus' crucifixion in Matthew and Mark and John, some commentators think there's good reason to believe that the mother of James and John is a woman named Salome, Jesus' aunt on his mother's side. And if that is the case, then James and John are also Jesus' cousins. So very possibly, it's Aunt Salome, Cousin James, and Cousin John who come to Jesus with this request. And as so many others have, the mother of Zebedee kneels before him and, and he says to her, what do you want? She straightens herself up and she says, grant that these two sons of mine may sit at your right and at your left when you come in your kingdom. Nominate James and John to influential posts on your cabinet. Pave the way for their appointment as vice president and secretary of state. And Jesus shakes his head. Are you sure that that's really what you want? You don't know what you're asking, he says. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? We can, they answer, with a lot more confidence, maybe, than they even felt. Okay, Jesus says, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit in these places of honor in my kingdom is not something I can grant. Those places belong to those for whom my Father has prepared them. Jesus is under no illusions about what is going to await the sons of Zebedee. Things are not going to be sunshine and roses for them. Sharing in Jesus' glory also means participating in his suffering. These two brothers will indeed drink from Jesus' cup. In Acts 12, James is killed by the sword of King Herod Agrippa. He's the first of the apostles who dies a martyr. John ends up exiled for his ministry on the island of Patmos. You don't know what you're asking for, Jesus says to them. Reigning with me also means sharing in my suffering. This is a request you're making that I can't grant. Don't you wonder what's behind Salome's request? Might James and John have had a sense that asking for a position of honor wasn't something that was really, that was a little bit too forward, but maybe if they sent mom in, she could get a word in with Jesus. Or maybe the brothers think of Jesus' statement about how he'll build his church. He says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Clearly, Peter seems to be at a place of influence with Jesus, somebody 
that he is counting on. So maybe if James and John don't say anything, they'll find themselves way down the list in Jesus' lineup. Whatever the case, on the way to Jerusalem, the three of them, mom and two sons, ask for a specific guarantee from Jesus that they're valuable, that they matter, that they are important in Jesus' kingdom. I wonder if you, I know I do, bring requests to Jesus sometimes that he will not or cannot grant. Maybe we kneel before Jesus and we hear him say, what do you want? And if we strip away all the veneers of our self-deception, who we think we are, who we think we want to be, and we get real honest, maybe we respond with things like this. I want you to make my work successful. I want you to make my opinion valuable. I want you to make my life inspirational. Lord, I want you to give my children the knowledge and skills and aptitudes and connections that they need to get ahead in this world. And so gently and patiently, with love in his eyes, Sometimes Jesus meets us and says, I don't know if you know what you're asking for. I have other goals than these for you. And your share in my glory is also a share in my suffering. In reality, it's just a fact that James and John did not need to be worried about being left out or forgotten. Mother Zebedee didn't need to plead a case because Jesus already promised places of honor to all 12 disciples. In Matthew 19, he says, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, the 12 of you are going to be there, seated on 12 thrones and judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So given the backdrop of that promise, it's pretty understandable that when the other ten disciples hear what the brothers have asked for, they're indignant. That's Matthew's understated way of letting us know that the ten wished that they had thought of asking Jesus for these places first. James and John's mistaken desire to claim privilege and rank is also the desire of the other disciples. But in Jesus' kingdom, there's no rank. Each disciple is already valuable in the now and future reign of Jesus. So Jesus says, come on, come on, let's do this again. Gather in, not so that he can rebuke their envious spirits or just correct their way of thinking, but so that they can be near him, so that he can show them a servant way so that in him they will continue to hear and see and recognize a better way of life. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, he says to them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so for you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. 
just as the Son of Man did not come to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The way to glory and greatness is not through a privileged position. The way to glory and greatness is through the path of service. Jesus' prescription for human ambition, for greatness, for recognition, to heal that is something applied freely to the hands, to the mind, to the heart, to the feet. For disciples inclined to request power that isn't theirs, Jesus turns that desire upside down, a life posture of humble service will do the trick. This posture of service makes life with Jesus and for Jesus and among his people compelling for those who are inside the walls of his church and those who are still looking for where they belong in the kingdom of God. Direct access to ordinary people whose servant lives spread the fragrance of Jesus in the world. Last fall, author and editor Caitlin Beatty published a book called Celebrities for Jesus. And she says that what makes Christian faith most compelling for her in that book? If I could point to a defining factor that has made Christian faith alluring, plausible, and real to me, it's other Christians. Not specific leaders or figureheads teaching and preaching from a stage or on a screen far away. Certainly not any famous Bible teachers and social media influencers, even the ones whose writing and teaching has undeniably enriched my life. I mean the ordinary, flawed, messy fellow humans working out what it means to love God and their neighbors day in and day out without fanfare or praise. These people simply find that their lives are taken up in an eternal reality larger than they themselves. And they live with a sense that their small acts of love carry great significance in Jesus' kingdom. What makes Christ real to me are such people in my life. I could say that. Maybe you could too. Every day, I see some of you here, some of you out in the neighborhood, engaging in loving acts in Jesus' name. You are people who unload dishwashers and who make meals. You are people who do gross jobs and who, do, who answer the same question 13 times and ask Jesus for the strength to do those kinds of things again tomorrow. You are church members who teach Sunday school, who lead scouts, you are teenagers who pray and serve and help us see Jesus in your lives. You are elders and deacons who work hard through long meetings. You are people who write cards and remember anniversaries and birthdays. The power that Jesus is giving to you, to all of us, is not power to rule over or influence each other from afar, but to come close, to serve and love in nearness. So thank you, LaGrave Congregation, for encouraging me in our shared faith. When I talk with God, 
about the concerns that I carry. I think my mother's Zebedee request for Jesus goes something like this. Jesus, I want your assurance. I want your promise that whatever difficulty comes my way, whatever difficulty comes our way, in this life will somehow be worth it in the end. And as I think about that, I know that that is more of a cry of the heart and the gut than a cry of the head. Because I'm not really sure how I would determine what sacrifice or struggle towards service in this life was worth it. How would I measure that? So even there, we have to trust Jesus' sovereignty. I do think that Jesus wants to deepen my confidence and yours in him without giving us the hope that we will be able to see absolute correlation between this particular sacrifice and that particular glory. In Jesus' love and in his wisdom and in his long purposes, I think he is trying to help us grow stronger to hold up the weight of the glory that is yet to come. I think he wants our response of faithfulness and courage in small and unlikely places because it's in some of those places where he loves to do his best work. And despite the allure of fame, the highest value of our lives is not to be famous or influential ourselves. The highest value of our lives is to know and love and serve and enjoy the most famous person in all of creation. His book is a bestseller all over the world. His name is literally written in the stars. His image is stamped on every human that we meet. He has given his life for us and paid a debt that we could not on our behalf. So we make it our aim to serve him. We look at ourselves in the mirror in the morning and we marvel at the mysterious, shimmering gift that is this life in which to know him and be known. And we say to Jesus, you've saved me to serve you. How would we like to do that together today? Thanks be to God. Our God, you are great, and we are small. And I pray for um, your sustaining grace in my life and in the lives of these siblings, that you will guide us forward in paths of service for the sake of your name and for the sake of others. In Jesus' name, amen.